Welcome to Wisdom Radio, an ad-free premium podcast fully supported by our listeners. This is Andy Height. Welcome. Freddie Silva is a best-selling author, a leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He is also a leading expert on crop circles, and in the course of this conversation, I hope to connect those dots. Um, Freddie has published six books in six languages. The latest is The Missing Lands, Uncovering Earth's Pre-Flood Civilization. Uh, Freddie, real quickly, people can find information on that on um, invisibletemple.com. Is that right? Or is there? Absolutely. Always support your authors and your musicians by buying directly. Exactly. Jeff Bezos is already too rich. I couldn't agree. At our expense, I should add. <laughs> yes. Um, described by one CEO as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now, for two decades, Freddie has been an international keynote speaker with appearances on Gaia TV, History Channel, BBC, and one of my favorite radio shows, Coast to Coast AM. Um, he's also a documentary filmmaker and leads private tours to sacred sites uh, in England, France, Egypt, Portugal, Yucatan, um, Malta, Peru, Bolivia, and Scotland. So let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. All right. Here's my first question for you. Um, you know, I was reading that you said sages, scholars, mystics, and even the Knights Templar hardwired a library of information at sacred sites as an insurance policy for times when we'd forget why we're here. Um, as someone who's traveled all around the world studying countless sacred sites, what is your informed opinion on what sacred sites have in common around the world and if they could have possibly been built at least partially to help us today remember, you know, humanity remember who we are. They, yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of a very long tradition uh, that goes back at least before the flood. So we're talking 11,000 years. Uh, if you read any of the old ancient texts, they talk about extremely advanced civilizations that were living a parallel existence here on Earth when we were just a bunch of wee Neanderthals. Uh, so if the academic model is correct, and these people were supposed to be uncivilized, how did they write such incredibly detailed stories? The two don't go together. Uh, so there is this tradition that has been going on for as far as the Indian people are concerned. Um, they talk about academies which were lost to the ocean uh, uh, during several transgressions of the ocean. So that they actually memorize and memorialize several of the rises in sea levels, which we now know to be have taken place a long, long time ago. The last one actually being in about 3000 BC. And um, so they talk about these academies, which are now under the Indian Ocean. And um, if you read one of the um, Rig Vedas very carefully, it states that each academy lasted approximately 4,000 years. And there was five of them that were noted. Now, the uh, normal academic notion is that the academies really began around 500 BC. Well, let's take that at face value. Uh, if each one of these academies ran for 4,000 years, uh, four times five, that's already 20,000 years before 5,000 BC. So there's, there goes the academic model right there. Um, and they really pretty much figured out that each cycle, each 4,000-year cycle, brings with it all kinds of devastation and earth changes. Mm -hmm. And each time it happens, the sea level goes up, the landmass shrinks, 
and now we have at least evidence of one uh, major academy which lies off the coast of India uh, under about 50 feet of, of seawater. So this is a tradition that's been going for a long, long time. And in the old days, the way that I've figured it out is that uh, the information was passed on uh, audibly between wisdom keepers. Uh, people would be required to memorize information Oh, sometimes as much as 10 years. I mean, these people had nothing better to do. Mm -hmm. There was no social media, people. And uh, they had plenty (laughs) of time on their hands. So, And the idea was to live a better life, to be able Mm -hmm. to uh, live your life aware. Uh, And what that meant was that you come and you're born on the planet as a soul and you are housed within a physical vessel called the body. And you forget. It's the, the paradox of life is that you forget why you're here. And someone, somehow, somewhere, worked out that using certain techniques, you can actually find the moment in time during your daily life where, using certain practices, you can leave the body, go into the other world, and come back with information. Just like a lucid dream, you remember everything. And you apply these things in your life, and then you become a better person. And consequently, you also improve the world around you. And as the millennia go by, and as more destruction and changes in civilization occur, they began to hardwire the information into the very fabric of the temples themselves. So when mm-hmm. people, the, uh, when initiates would go into the temple, and you have to give up about three years of your life to do this, you, essentially you would read the information, you would talk the information, and you undertook certain practices to make your life much better than uh, we give ourselves credit for. Uh, and that's what they were doing. It was part of a very, very long legacy. And I suspect, reading some of the texts from the Yucatan and from Egypt, that they could foresee changes that would happen a long, long way down the line because they had an incredibly developed psychic ability. Mm-hmm. And this is actually recorded in the Yucatec text that they could see far without traveling. And that was the expression that they used. And they, I think that they reckoned that at one point in our evolution, we would come to where we are today and we would lose track of sacred space. We would lose track of our spirituality. We'd invent something called religion, which is the last thing you really need to develop a spiritual self because so much, especially a Western religion, removes you from that state of, of godliness. And uh, mm-hmm. Eastern traditions, not so much so. They still have an essence of the inner techniques of discovering the God sure. within yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Western religion, this model, really has met, muddled this up. And this is for this reason that they built this temple culture so that when we forgot who we are, we would go and find out where the information is, whether by meditation or whether by reading hieroglyphs or by reading the temple itself. There is a language of the temple. We begin to pick up this information and slowly it filters itself into you. So it's a very practical uh, knowledge, if I I'd like to call it that, a practical magic. Um, this is why I refer to the temples as self-help centers. Uh, you just have to go there without a preconceived notion, without any kind of logical attachment. And when you penetrate the inner sanctum of each temple, you come out feeling very different than when you when you started. And this is why I do what I do. Uh, it becomes a bit of a drug afterwards, but for all the right reasons. That's fascinating. Um, let's talk about the sacred geometry a little bit in in these sacred sites of uh, the patterns the symbols the the numbers uh, i don't know if you've ever seen that video on youtube with sand uh they put some sand on top of a big speaker and and then they uh they have different tones coming through the speaker mm-hmm. you know you know like that and every time 
you reach a different set point with frequency, the sand will take a pattern. Yes, climatic. And you keep, you know. Um, do you think something like these symbols and patterns and numbers, like nine, three, one, let's say, let's start with some... Is it possible that that's part of the remembering process? It's just, it just is. It's not, um, just, just as that sand changes, maybe something changes in our spiritual connectedness when we're exposed to those types of symbols or light frequencies hitting on walls or what, what are your thoughts with regard to that? Oh, that's a lot of stuff in there. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we could take five weeks just to talk through that alone. <laughs> uh, the idea of what they were doing with the temple culture was to really make the invisible manifest in, in a physical shape. So we can let's take, for example, um, one of the oldest temples in Egypt, uh, possibly the oldest temple in Egypt, which is the Osirian at Abydos. Uh, not an underground temple. It was actually a freestanding structure, which was actually bathed by the water of the Nile 12,000 years ago. Uh, this is all new information. And if you go into the Osirian, which to all intents and purposes is a big rectangle made of some very, very large pieces of um, red granite and also sandstone. And it's also a very boring site. It's just very linear, big chunks of rock, perfectly machined, still in a perfect state of preservation. And you have uh, 17 alcoves all the way around these very thick walls. And uh, there's a couple of uh, holes in the ground, which are two different shapes of rectangles, a couple of steps, and a big moat around it. And you think, well, what was the point of that? Well, once you actually step back a little bit and figure out the relationship of the position of the pillars to the walls and the thickness of the pillars relative to the platform on which they stand, you begin to extract a relationship which you don't see, but you can feel. And it's a double pentagram, the symbol of nature. So the harmony of what you're looking at, the beauty of what you're looking at is defined by an invisible geometric matrix. Mm -hmm. And each temple is different. I play a trick with people when we go on the tour to Egypt and uh, we stay right next to the pyramids. It's a beautiful hotel. And um, on the first day, everybody's very keen to get up on the Giza plateau and we ride some camels and then we get off in the middle of the sand and I'll tell people, which one of those three pyramids do you like? And people will point to a different one. And I said, but, but they're all pyramids. They're all the same. And there's a big silence. And they go, ah, so you got a good point there. Well, that one's bigger than that one. Yeah, uh, maybe so. Uh, you're kind of stimulated by size. But there is a reason why I asked you that, because in 10 days from now, after I've talked about the things that I'm going to tell you, and we go over 10, 12 temples, you're going to come back here, and I'm going to ask you the same question, and you're going to give me a completely different answer. And they do, because unknowns to them, each pyramid on Giza has a different slope angle, and that slope is defined by a different geometry. So, for example, the Great Pyramid is actually based on the heptagonal, uh, angle, which is a seven-pointed star, that has a completely different effect to the building next to it, which is ever so slightly different, which is based on a hexagon. And the little pyramid, again, is very, very different. And each one elicits a different effect. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to do exactly uh, what I've just said, which is to elicit a different effect in the person that's entering the building. Sure. So what the ancients were very good at was to look at the invisible universe. They looked outside of the earth mm -hmm. and they reasoned that everything in the cosmos is perfect. The problems start when we come down to earth 
and we get uh, latched into uh, material attachments, and then we get ego that fills the equation. Mm -hmm. And it's these things that start destroying your inner geometry. Okay, because well, we are built of geometry essentially. If you look at under an electron microscope at the molecules that make up who we are, and that these things begin to f uh, make you fall apart. So they distilled the universe around them, nature by any other name, and they took this uh, uh, nature down to its lowest common denominator. Because when you look at plants, the lowest common denominator in plants is the geometry, the number of petals, the, the golden ratio, which defines their height-length uh, relationship. So they would distill these elements, they would observe nature and find out, okay, these plants do this, and they elicit this kind of effect. So we're going to take the geometry of these, this particular plant that elicits this kind of effect, and we're going to hardwire it into the design of a temple. So you can't see the geometry, but you can feel it. And that's the point. And uh, from there, if you want to strip the geometry away, what you're left with is number. And it's always been said that uh, in the mystery schools that God is a geometer. Uh, all that exists in the universe is geometry or number. And in fact, the two are the same thing. I mean, geometry is the expression of number in space. That's all it is. So if you take away the visual, you're left with number. You can define everything by number. So the reason why we go around the world and looking at the perfection of nature and the art, uh, uh, yes, the, the perfection of creation, it always comes in threes. Uh, to the Christian person, this would be the Father, uh, Son, Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. But you have this concept all around the world as well, not in the same words, but in a different format. But if you look at this as a geometer, you'd say, well, the one, two, three is the tetrahedron, uh, the pyramid shape, the triangle. That essentially is the glue that holds together all the atoms in the subatomic world. Mm -hmm. So how do they figure that out? And that's the point. They were able to distill these very complex things, which they would call science, and they narrowed it down into a visual complex that they hardwired into the buildings. So uh, another example is uh, the use of the square in the Far Eastern design, like pagodas, for example. You have a perfect square which stripped to its bare essentials is the number four. So the number four is a, is a symbol of balance. The four visible elements held in perfect balance. And you go into these rooms and you go, yeah, it feels really balanced in here. Well, yes, you're getting that effect. Mm -hmm. uh, anything to do with the pentagram is always associated with five. So when you look at the position of pillars in the room, you look at the five pillars and you go, there's a pentagram in here somewhere. And if you happen to have a good computer uh, model, you can extract the uh, geometry of one of these buildings. And you feel there's a certain difference between the space that is defined by a square, the number four, and the space that's defined by a pentagram or the number five. The two are creating a completely different environment. And mm -hmm. that's what they were trying to get at, to get you to have this experience of nature inside a temple. So each temple does something completely different to you mm -hmm. because you, at different stages in your life, need different geometries with which to interact so you can become a whole within yourself. So that's what that's the game that they were playing. It was it's mm -hmm. highly complex. Mm -hmm. But once you look at this over the course of, oh, 20 years, I think, in my case, uh, maybe longer, uh, probably approaching 30 now, um, you begin to realize that these very complex, complex concepts can be narrowed down to very simple elements. Mm -hmm. And yet within those simple elements, you've got to know a hell of a lot to understand what they mean. So it's my just, job, uh, like many people before yeah. me, is to bring this level of complexity down to its simplest possible denominator so I can teach people about sure, it. Sure, sure. Well, it's just, 
I mean, it, it's amazing to me. I mean, who were who were these people? <laughs> but I mean, it, that's one of the big mysteries. Is if you think about these sacred sites uh, going up all over the world, at you know. Uh, I mean, and even now they're saying with some of the melting of the, the polar regions, they're beginning to perhaps think there may be some sacred sites up there. I, I just recently heard that. I don't, I don't even know if it's absolutely true, but there, you know, there are some inklings of that. That um, So you just, it sort of makes you wonder. And I guess that's, is that one of the things that drives your work? Is that mystery? Oh, yes. <laughs> There's never any end to to this stuff. Uh, and that's the beautiful thing about it. You can go on forever. Um, it's uh, the people who really put this together. And I mean, I've just written a book called The Missing Lands, which kind of tries to put that puzzle together, because that was kind of at the forefront of my understanding for the last 15 years. I kept hearing these different names of Anunnaki and watches and shining ones and other people. And they usually get a, a very bad rap, by the way. And I don't uh, really know why. I, I guess because humans like uh, going into the negative, into the dark side, because it's so sure. much more fascinating. Sure. But if you, if you actually look at the origin of uh, these people who were called the Anunnaki in the Middle East, without them, today would not have a single human left alive on the planet Earth. All you have to do is read the original story in its Mesopotamian format, which eventually becomes the original story uh, written by Enoch, which, mm -hmm. by the way, was not his real name. That's just a, a Hebrew version. Uh, his real name was Emed Ur-Anu. He was actually one of the Anu, Naki himself. And um, he talks about, it's one of the oldest surviving texts, and he talks about how a long, long, long time ago, before the flood even was uh, anywhere near happening, he talks about a group of people that uh, were human-like but not quite human. And they were very tall, sometimes with elongated skulls, and that uh, they would had a problem with their skin and the sun here because they had to keep anointing themselves with a kind of lotion, mm -hmm. and, that's, and they gave their skin a shining appearance, and that's why the term shining ones comes from. But it was also a metaphor to indicate the fact that the, uh, they're also much more enlightened than ordinary humans because you've got that shininess about them. So it's a metaphor as well. Mm -hmm. Well, little did I know that the story picks up in South America because the uh, people that were worked with a god called Viracocha, who rebuilt the temples of Tiwanaku and other places in uh, Peru and Bolivia, he had a group of seven people called the Haiwawapanti. And I had no idea that it meant anything until I asked uh, my Aymara guide, I said, does, does that actually mean something? Because in the old days, words actually meant something. They referred to something very specific. And said, actually, it does. It means uh, shining ones. And he had no idea that that's what they were calling oh the goodness. gods back in Mesopotamia. And I tracked the whole story through Polynesia into New Zealand, Easter Island, all the way through the Sahara. They're one and the same people being called by different names. So oh. all the gods from India to China to Japan through North America, even the Hopi talk about the shining people. They are one, the same brotherhood and sisterhood of people because there were women involved. And uh, that's what fascinated me about them. And uh, to the next stage of, of, the, of, the, of the question, how all has this been going around? We don't know. Uh, right. The Egyptian text, which is called the Turin Papyrus, I believe it's housed in Leningrad, if I'm not mistaken, uh, St. Petersburg. It talks about the Egyptian bloodline that uh, precedes the first, and I quote, the first pharaoh of a purely human bloodline. 
Now, that's a very interesting uh, paragraph. Interesting. Uh, his name was Mena. He takes the throne in 3100 BC. And then you get all the humans that come after that, which mm -hmm. is uh, kind of interesting. But before that, there was half human, half divine uh, gods that ruled Egypt. And before that, there was a time of the gods. And if you add all the numbers up, uh, you start taking Egyptian uh, history back to about ooh, nine, uh, 39,000 BC. Mm -hmm. So we already have a problem right there. Yeah. This has been going on far longer than we can possibly imagine. But if you look at these Sumerian texts, uh, which were inherited from the Mesopotamians, and they inherited theirs from somebody else. Mm -hmm. They talk about people's, uh, the king list in one of the seals that goes to about, I believe it's 140,000 years, and they have no problem with these timelines. Now, you could say, okay, maybe the earth was spinning differently back then. Uh, maybe they were adopting a lunar calendar, but even so, even with a Sophic calendar, which defines the trajectory of Sirius, mm -hmm. even so you cannot get that kind of timeline um, through a normal calendar. And one of the things that I kept popping up again and again all around the world was that before the flood, during the time of the gods, these people lived to incredibly long lifespans. 800 years of earth time was not unusual. In fact, uh, there was one story about the first god of Egypt, Ra. So these were real people not just metaphysical concepts. Mm -hmm. The original god Ra rules for 800 years, by which time he's, a, he's portrayed as an old man with a bent head and he's got drool coming out of his mouth, side of his mouth. And his son says, listen, Dad, um, I think it's time to leave now and give the uh, kids a chance to reign. And this is after 800 years. Wow. Uh, and the story also pops up in the Bible, which, of course, is inherited from the Mesopotamian text, so no surprise there. And they talked about Noah having a comparatively short lifespan of only 400 years. So obviously something was happening on Earth with the bloodlines diminishing because they kept trying to intermarry with humans and it did not work out too well. The uh, women would die during childbirth because they gave birth to infants. Yeah, these people were eight and a half feet tall at the very least. Uh, and, then, and then you get giants, uh, but that's another story. So these gods have been around for a long, long time practicing their craft, and it makes sense when you look at it from the Indian point of view of the stories that they wrote. They talk about these flying craft where they would go and obliterate a city just by flying there and flying back. Well, again, if they were primitive, they could not have written these incredibly elaborate stories. I mean, this is uh, some pretty serious uh, writing and imagination that's going on. Not the kind of thing that Neanderthals would have been up to. No, and all of the mysteries about how these sites even were built because of the sheer uh, technical inability. You know, I mean, they even say yeah. even today um, there isn't a crane large enough to lift some of these. Yes, you'd massive... think that they'd make life easy for themselves. Um, well, um, there's, so... a, there's a big rock at Belbeck, for example, which up until 20 years ago, we thought that there was just one big rock in the quarry and it's massive. It's, it's bigger than my apartment building uh, by a long margin. And uh, so we're talking a thousand foot uh, floor plan. Uh, this is this rock is even bigger than this. There was only like uh, two cranes on Earth at the time that could actually lift that barely. It was uh, 800 tons. There's a crane in Japan that was designed to lift ships out of the water onto a dry dock. And that was only developed in the late 1990s or about 2000, I believe. And after that, there was a German archaeologist that began digging under it to find out if there any other rock like this. And they found another one, which went to 1,400 tons. And they went, wow, that's big. But there was a third one now under it 
and that's at 1,600 tons, and there's nothing on earth that can lift that. And you think you could, they could have made things easy for themselves, but then the, the thing that I laugh at when I travel to places like Peru is that you look at the original foundation of the temples, which the Inca didn't build anything, by the way, and the local people will tell you that quite easily. They inherited all this stuff. The lower portions of the temples is where you'll find the megalithic work. Now, you'd think that since we're developing in civilization, we'd start off very simply with the mud brick, and then you work your way up to megalithic stuff. But no, the more complex, the more finished stuff is at the bottom, and the rubbish is at the top. We've actually regressed in terms of construction technique, and few people can actually work that one out. Let's say that these uh, individuals, the shining ones... um you know, or visiting from someplace else, um, either to help us remember what our capabilities are, or who we are. I mean, would that would their interest in us be because they were trying to intermix bloodlines, or what do you? Why do you think they cared? And, and, and let's even talk about the flood, the pre-flood civilization, and then the flood, and. Um, that period of your latest book, The Missing Lands. Um, what are your thoughts about why, why they cared? Well, or, the story or, is fra- yeah. very much fragmented. Much of it has not survived. It, it survives in like the Hopi stories, which uh, Frank Waters was very kind enough to write down for us. It survives in South America in the local traditions of the Aymara, but you have to go there and find out from them. And uh, when you start piecing bits together, which is what I love doing, mm-hmm. and this is the basis for the for the new book, just traveling around the world and getting the story from people who are local. Uh, the stuff, like for example, the prehistory of New Zealand, no one's ever heard about that, or the prehistory of Easter Island, it's there. You just got to ask the right people, and their story has been put under the carpet. And from the fragments that we have so far, I built up the following scenario: that there was a, a parallel civilization that lived here, and they kept themselves to themselves. They were very shy about interacting with humans because they recognized that they were much more advanced. And for them to interact with humans on a direct basis would have stifled and also deliberately altered the movement of their natural development. Uh, So, for example, about 20 years ago, there was a group of anthropologists that went on a field trip to Borneo. They're in the middle of the jungle, and by accident, they interacted with a, a tribe of people that were running around naked. And they inadvertently altered their social structure. Within a year, they've got loincloths, they're wearing banana leaves on their wrist to signify that they have the same gizmo, that the watch that the uh, uh, these gods had uh, were wearing when they came out of the jungle. So you change the culture. It's like, it's like Star Trek. Uh, because it's, of like the, uh, it's like the Star Trek Prime Directive, right? You don't want to... That's exactly why that series is so popular because he was part, Roddenberry was part of a, a group seance with a very famous psychic called Billy Schlemmer. And if you look at the transcripts of the information that she was getting back when she's in trance and you look at the scripts for Star Trek, the prime directive is called the law of non-intervention. Uh, this is what they call it in the other world. And that's why the series is so powerful, because there's a lot of truth in it. It's a universal truth. He just wrapped it in a space-age theme. It's very clever. Mm-hmm. It's like Star Wars. They wrapped the same story of Isis and Osiris and the path of the initiate in the story of not Luke Skywalker, but of Darth Vader, uh, because that is the redemption of Darth Vader that's the basis of the whole story. Starting the light, seduced by the dark, and at the very end, he recognizes the mistake 
and he becomes uh, raised. Uh, they call it risen from the dead back in the old days when you become enlightened in your lifetime. Um, so these people obviously knew that uh, to interact with humans was not going to work out well, and they, did, they apparently did so only out of desperation. And it mm -hmm. seems to have arrived in the three last cataclysms that we had, which each one of them brought a major conflagrations onto the earth, the last one being the Great Flood. Uh, these are called the Old Dryas, the Older Dryas, and the Younger Dryas. And uh, each time they would lose land, mostly they lived mostly on islands as far as I can figure out, and uh, in the last one, they lost everything. They were forced onto the continental shelves, and that's where you get some of the oldest pieces of civilization on Earth, always along the coast, quite by accident, all very suddenly at the same time. And this coincides with the uh, survivors of the flood landing on the coastal areas. And they said, well, there's not many of us left. There's not many humans left. The only thing we can do is teach them what we know and let things go where they are. Otherwise, no one's going to survive. And mm -hmm. uh, humans didn't know how to build houses. They didn't know how to cultivate crops. And suddenly around 8,500 BC, we'd learned how to domesticate cattle, crops, develop housing. Boom. So there's, there's the connection right there. Oh. Uh, as to where they came from, I hear the word Orion everywhere I go around the world, specifically the bell stars. Uh -huh. And I, I'm still working on this because, it's uh, again, it's a work in progress. But as far as I figured out, each culture on Earth says that at one point there was the ability to travel from here to Orion, mm -hmm. whether it was by a structured craft or by an actual movement of the manipulation of the laws of nature. So if you sit in a specific hotspot, and we do have geomagnetic hotspots all over the Earth, they're called temples, by the way. The temples are sit exactly on the same hotspots. They were able to move, physically move themselves from that place to another level of reality using what they called a tube or a reed of heaven. And you have that story from Japan all the way to Persia. Uh, so, and, and then after the flood, because uh, humans kept uh, messing things up when they were given good information and some of the gods also, a group, small groups of gods also fell by the wayside. They were corrupted by the vices of the, of the earth people. The gods said, we're going to withdraw the ladder to heaven. You're going to have to figure out for yourselves now in the next uh, movement of uh, civilization, which is what we're in now. Uh, we've gone through 9,000 years of experimentation, and we're in a bit of a crisis right now. We're facing the same problems that they had back then, except back then they had uh, meteorites coming out of the sky, which ironically NASA is actually very obsessed about right now as well. So they left, it, they left us on our, uh, to our own devices. They gave us the information. They gave us the knowledge. Anybody who's interested can go to the temple or to the wisdom keepers and inquire, and then they can better themselves and leave the planet in a better way in which they found it. Um, so there's nothing really new there. So that's the, as best as I've found so far, that there was a physical, direct communication going on with the belt stars of Orion. And I also should add that every single temple on the face of the Earth that's aligned to Orion or somehow connected to Orion has been shut down including the Great Pyramid, by the way. That's why we can't find what's in there. Uh, because there, it was an energy portal, and they don't want you to find out about it because it could just bring all kinds of destruction to people who don't know how to behave, sure. uh, which is usually us. There's a, speaking of Star Trek, there's that one episode with a resonator, um, and it's a very advanced technology. It's just a simple, almost looks like a boomerang. And I just remember that one. My, what you're talking about reminds me of that that the resonator goes both ways, right? Yeah. It can be, it can be a tool of great enlightenment or, but if 
you don't quite know how to use it, it can just destroy. Exactly. It's like a hammer. You can put a, a hang a picture frame with it, or you can bash someone's head with it. Exactly. And that's that was the point that the gods were making. Uh, we can only suggest this is why the the, the uh, craftspeople that worked around the lords of Anu were called watchers. They they can watch humanity. This is where the concept of angels comes from. They're called messengers in Greek. Uh, the watchers basically were dishing out little bits of information to the hunter-gatherers uh, just to get them to, uh, accustomed to becoming more self-sufficient. They taught mm-hmm. them how to grow grain and civilize crops and domesticate cattle. And uh, and then they left them alone, left people alone to find out where they would go. And they'd find that, you know, whenever people obeyed the, the simple rules of life, which today we call the Ten Commandments, except back then there were 39 of them, uh, these are the rules by which the gods sat down and said, look, don't kill people, treat others as you treat yourself, don't steal, don't curse, don't lie, don't use words against other people unless you want them used against you as well. And you live a perfect life. It's not that difficult. Right. Uh, these are the contexts for good behavior, which allows us to establish a platform upon which everyone can benefit. But of course, because ego and the vices of the earth come into play, not everybody's on the same page. And you get people who you know, turn life into chicken salad or chicken shit. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a free will planet and that's the way you go. And after a while, I think the God just said, just leave them to their own devices. Uh, but once things get a little bit out of control, we'll send uh, messengers down here just to sort of suggest a few things. Uh, the Hopi talk about this all the time, that just before the major conflagrations happen, whether they're societal or geological, um, they, the gods appear and they suggest things to the wisdom keepers. The wisdom keepers tell the people and the law goes out to say, look, we have help. There are ways that we can live with the earth or against it. Now, what are we going to do? And they leave it up to us to figure out. Do you think that's happening now in the form of these um, interactions uh, people have uh, either in a dream state, in a meditative state, or, uh, you know, in terms of connecting with consciousness, um, that's beyond themselves. Um, let's say you have people who have had alien interactions or they channel or they have uh, experiences uh, with, I don't know. I mean, do, do you think it's crop circles? I mean, do you think some of that messaging is trying to get through now? Oh, it always has. Uh, it's been happening for thousands of years. Uh, the Indians uh, and the Tamil people of Southern India, especially, they use Kriya Yoga as a mechanism by which you can take your temple, your body, use certain uh, principles by which you can leave the body consciously and go and connect with an astral reference library. You get the information that you need and you come back and you apply it. So they don't need a temple. They are the temple. Uh, the temple is just there when you don't realize that you can do it for yourself. Uh, some people are now doing ayahuasca retreats, which kind of gets you into that that sort of parallel universe, but not to the same degree as initiation does. It's an approximation, and any good shaman who practices uh, ayahuasca will tell you this, as I've been told, that uh, it's approximating the uh, method by which you leave the body and you get information. The, uh, a lot of people just do it for, for a week, which is not enough. You need months of your time to do it properly, and they use it as a kind of a vehicle, but a lot of the, the images really are coming from their own brain, not the experience itself. Uh, the crop circles are exactly what you just said. The mm. uh, the real ones 
Uh, and I should say that the majority of the real ones really happened between 1970 and about 1999. There's a lot of fakery going on right now. So don't believe what you read on the internet all the time, but they are, I was privy uh, at the uh, start of the phenomenon to be friends with a fantastic psychic in England, who's actually my friend. And she helps the police with the uh, murder inquiries. So you know that she is good and the police always go to her when they have a problem mm -hmm. and she has a like a near 100 percent record in sort, sorting things out you don't even know that she has any special ability she doesn't portray that and she inadvertently quite by accident uh, accidentally uh vector this information from a consciousness calling themselves watchers that said that they were going to show signs of their existence at the base of the hill of light in the south of england and the group which i'm part of we just scratch our heads and said what the hell is that about uh, the Hill of Light. Well, that's Silbury Hill. That's what the uh, Silbury Hill is, uh, Europe's largest man-made mound in England. We figured some signs are going to appear at the base of Silbury Hill. Oh, well, let's go and drive there seven days from now. And boom, first crop circle appears. Really? Went, oh, hello. That's what they're talking. And, and before you know it, we had this library of geometric knowledge built exactly on the same principles as any temple, as any pyramid in the world, except they're flattening crop with it. And they can bend the laws of nature to their will. They don't destroy any of the crop, by the way. That's one of the things that differentiates man-made from the real one. The crop is absolutely undamaged. And you can measure, measure the energy for years afterwards, by the way. And uh, we have so far extracted five new mathematical theorems. We have anti-gravity devices, which have been built from some of the, uh, the models that were presented. And uh, this information will come out in the right political moments. Right now, sure. it's not the right time to come out this, with this information. And right. I'm sworn to secrecy about it. So this is the watchers who are now operating from, let's say, the fourth dimension, whatever you want to call it. And they're saying, you know, we got tired of, and I quote, we got tired of being crucified when we were on Earth. We were giving information to humans. We'd always end up dying somehow. Uh, not everybody appreciated who we were, mostly because we looked a little bit odd. And we stopped coming. We just decided to operate from a new level. But uh, if you want the information... You ask us for the information and we'll give you the information. Ah, that's very nice. That's that why they're called angels in the Christian era, you see. Mm -hmm. So they're very real on their level of reality as we are on ours. So the way they communicate is by suggesting things. I like that idea of calling them because even in terms of something as simple as if, you're, let's say, you're not feeling well and you can sort of call on healing energies or, you know, bringing things... Um, into yourself, but it's not, you feel as though they're being given. Uh, yeah. uh, there, there's a gratitude there when you receive. It's a, it's an exchange. It's very powerful and palpable. Um, at least that's what I've noticed. It really is. And uh, the, one of the things that keeps coming through in the uh, channel material, uh, not just from Isabel, but from a lot of people who are renowned psychics. Uh, and again, you have to take psychics with uh, a pinch of salt because a lot of stuff out there has been also made up. But sure. my direct experience of some of these people and the information that we've been given, including knowledge of events that come to pass days later, like the tsunami in Indonesia, we know that was going to happen already. Uh, we can't, we can't really advise the police because they might think that we created the damn thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, right. like how did you have foreknowledge of uh, this event? You know, well, because we were told, boom, next thing you know, you're in jail. Um, so this is all about the fact that they're saying that, you know, if you ask us for help, we will give you the information, whether it's by symbols in fields or through dreams, 
premeditation. That's the way it's always been done uh, because they realize how difficult it is for the soul to choose to incarnate in a physical and limiting craft called the physical body. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, the, yeah, we're glad to help. We've been there. We've done that. We've got the T-shirt. And now we're helping other people who've gone uh, to be in the physical world. And we're more than happy to help you. We know how difficult it is. So ask for help and just watch for the signs. And my advice is don't expect anything to happen because if you're sitting there waiting for it to happen, it never does. It's the moment when you just let it go. It's like, I really could use information on this. You let it go and suddenly a coincidence pops in or a sign or a phone uh, uh, call is made or a book pops out of the shelf. And before you realize it with with a, a wonderful thing called hindsight is that, oh, that was the moment when I figured this out. And you think, I am so damn clever. Then you realize... Yeah, but I asked for help and I got it and I'm not giving them <laughs> enough credit. That's the way it's always happened. It's been around forever. That's wonderful. Um, let's see. Let's take a step back. Is there, um, we're almost up to our time here and I just, what have I missed today? What would you, what would you, I mean, there's so much we could talk about, but is there anything right now in this moment that you're feeling compelled to talk about? Probably the, the, the present um, plague. <laughs> okay, <laughs> these things always have a silver lining to them. I mean, uh, and the, the idea is, if you follow the teachings, don't get too caught up into the minutiae of things. Step back, l- like you're looking at the situation behind plexiglass, and look at the big picture. What is this supposed to say? Uh, uh, kind of like 9-11 as well, same thing. Yes, people lose their lives at the tragedy, but what are we supposed to get from this? What is the big picture here? The big picture is about the lack of understanding. It's a failure to communicate between cultures that led us to that event. And it's the same thing now. What are we getting out of this? Well, if you look around you right now, look at how clear the air is, okay? Forget for one moment all the people that have died. I mean, people die with the flu every year too. part and parcel of being here on the planet there are viruses everywhere and some people uh, unfortunately fall by the wayside and some develop immunity uh, from that that's just the way it is um so if you step back for a second it's giving you a chance to step back and, and look at life and realize we're on this treadmill without end we've just been brought to a standstill suddenly the earth must be wondering what have i done to deserve this peace and quiet we have turtles that are now for the first time nesting in florida there is no one on the beach. They're having a chance to survive. We're having fish and dolphins in the canals of Venice. Suddenly, it tells us that we need to step back and recognize what have we done to this planet? Because if we accept that this virus came from animals, or we don't have all the information yet, uh, I suspect it may have been also a laboratory experiment. It went very wrong. Time will tell. But this is the moment where we step back and say, what have we done to this planet that has created so much death? And I think great things will come of it. And uh, just like the gods faced, you know, burning mountains coming out of the sky, as they call it, which created the flood, we're now faced with this moment where we should ask ourselves that the decisions that we made in the capitalist system of the world cannot go on. Okay, We cannot go on treating ourselves on a daily basis and the whole life on the planet in the way we have been. This mm-hmm. is what led us to this catastrophe. And mm-hmm. I think big adjustments are going to be made and great good will come out of it. And from that, I suspect that we, if we reach a critical mass and we're very close to hitting a critical mass, although you don't get to hear about it, 
I think great things would be made that we will go into a different direction. Uh, you're already seeing it in the periphery. I mean, people developing machines that swallow plastic floating on the ocean, for example. Simple things like that are adding up to a very big thing. And I suspect that we will hit that moment where we are now in that window of opportunity called the, uh, the fifth world. Uh, we're already in the big change. We're in the middle of it. And I suspect that uh, this is what we, we, we've been waiting for for 4,000 years, the next level of evolution. And to get there, there will be pain. There always will be pain in order to reach another level of order. Any physicist that hears this will understand that. Mm -hmm. There's chaos and order. But to get to order, you have to have a lot of chaos in order to get that jump to new level of order. So the more chaos there is, the bigger the potential for a new level of order. So there is good news in this. And this is so, what they were saying, the indigenous people told us thousands of years ago, that we would go for these big moments where things would change, but there would be calamity in the middle of it. So nothing really new. And the idea, going back to the temple culture, is look at what they left us so that we can read the stuff uh, mm -hmm. and then apply it in our daily lives. There's really nothing new in, uh, when it comes to that. I love it. I love it. Well, um, your, your parting thought was one that I posted last night on on my uh, on wisdomradio.org um so we're having the same dreams i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it, I, I mean the more i travel the more i lecture around the world the more i see people doing exactly and saying exactly what we're talking about uh there are people i mean i've been to places in ohio that you've never even heard of and the place is packed and i'm not even a huge name by any means uh, i'm big but i'm not that big and it gives me encouragement that people are doing this on a daily basis. We're just, we've learned not to stick our heads over the castle wall and be shot. I think we've learned, finally learned that being burned at the stake is not going to help anybody. Uh, you, you basically live to survive for another day so you can be of help. Uh, and I see a lot of good stuff happening all the time. It's just that it doesn't make the headlines. You don't see it, but it's there. And uh, I, I kind of like what I see so far, but it will be difficult. The trick is just to tend your own garden, you know, stick. Uh, if there's something that you can't physically manipulate and change, then don't worry about it. Don't, don't lose sleep over it. Change what you can. Okay, even, the, even your own garden, just to show your neighbor, hey, this is what I did. And the neighbor on your left will say, that's a great idea. I can grow my own vegetables. And the person next door, uh, you know, will want to burn your house down. But that's fine, you know, because not everybody's on the same playing field. But that's the way the earth is. The trick is just to do what, the little that you can. Well, thank you for joining me today. It's been a delight. Where can, where's the, is that uh, one site, the best place for people to find all of your stuff kind of all in one place? It goes from my website at Invisible Temple. Okay. And there's an option to buy the DVD or uh, go to watch it on Gaia. Actually, it's not on Gaia yet. It won't be there for nine months. Sure. They do take their time putting things up. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a backlog. But there is a pay-per-view okay. uh, that I've now figured out on Vimeo. All right. Wonderful. Well, that's exciting. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to see where that goes. And that might end up being a book. Uh, I'm still working on it. Right. Uh, I go there every year to Scotland. So each year, a new piece of the puzzle comes up. So it takes its time. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Freddie, and uh, we will look forward to talking with you again. And in the meantime, stay well and um, let's keep evolving. Oh, thanks, Andy. This is your host, Andy Height. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting Wisdom Radio through your subscription so we can stay ad-free the way we like it. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wisdom Radio. 
Guest suggestions are always welcome at wisdomradio.org. Until next time, remember to follow your brightest path.